Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue our worship in prayer. Father, it is a, a, a good and a, and a much-needed reminder that in Christ you have become truly Lord of all the earth. And we do long for the day when that kingship is unquestioned, when it is without resistance, when there are no longer any opponents or adversaries, when there's no longer any delusion or human hubris. And Father, we need to be reminded of these things because we, we look around this world and it's easy to be distressed and to ask that question, where is our God? Where is his power? Where is his reign? And yet we, we know and we should be encouraged by what were some of Jesus' final words, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, not only do we have confidence for the lives that you have called us to. But we have confidence for this world. And we rejoice that your intent is not to destroy your good creation, but to renew it. And one day, even this creation that groans under the effects of the curse will enjoy its own full renewal It's fruit from the redemption that is in Christ. And Father, I pray that as the creation groans, confident of that day that it would be so with us, that our groaning would be the groaning of hope, the groaning of assurance, the groaning of longing, not the groaning of discontentment or fear, or discouragement, disillusionment, but the longing for the day when all things are summed up in Christ our Lord. And I pray that you would encourage us in this day as we step back from the things that press our days, our hearts, our, that, that burden us, and that you would allow us to have again a fresh look at Christ our Lord, the one seated at the right hand of power, the one who has said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, the one whose goodness and love is over all the world, the one who will see his triumph fully 
realized. Bless us in this time. Thank you for even giving us the opportunity still in this land to gather as worshipers and to do so without fear of reprisal, without fear of imprisonment, without fear of death. And Father, we don't know what the future will hold, but we pray that we will be faithful with the days that you have given to us and that we will rejoice in all that you've afforded us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Colin mentioned, we're going to be considering Psalm 2 today, not just because it's the next psalm in the Psalms, although although it is, but because of what I see to be a very important relationship between Psalm 1 or with Psalm 1, which, uh, again, the Jewish compilers determined to introduce the Psalter with, And I think that the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is something that also uh, requires us to hold them together. I mentioned last time that most of the Psalms in Book 1 of the Psalter are Davidic, ascribed to David. There are only four that aren't. Um, The first two are two of those four. Psalm 2 also is anonymous in that the The text of the psalm doesn't have any ascription to it, but I mentioned last time that uh, the New Testament certainly uh, assigns Davidic authorship to Psalm 2. We see that in Acts chapter 4 as that psalm is cited, and there's very obvious reasons why it would be associated with David, but again, the psalm itself does not make that assignment. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. Interestingly, it's addressed uh, throughout the New Testament in different contexts. We saw in the book of Hebrews, Psalm 2 being addressed with respect to the writer's claim that Jesus did not seize or take to himself the priesthood, but it was given to him by his father. And he proved that argument, that contention, uh, with a citation from Psalm 2, you are my son, this day I've begotten you. And it's an interesting connection because Psalm 2 has nothing to do with the priesthood. It's an enthronement psalm. Uh, And I'm not going to go back down that path. You can go and listen to that section. But ultimately, it's the connection between the kingship and the priesthood that drives that uh, proof text or that contention on the part of the the author of Hebrews. But Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. It extols and it exalts Yahweh's son, King. Yahweh's son, king, the one in whom he exercises his own reign in the world. And in that sense, it has three distinct but related echoes to it. It first of all harkens back to the creation account in which God created spheres of dominion, realms of dominion, and then lords to rule over those spheres of dominion. And then over all of that, he sat the creature created in his own image and likeness. Man specifically created in in God's own image and likeness for the sake of manifesting God's presence, his rule with his mind, his heart, his will, over the works of his hands. God created man with the intent that man would be the ruling authority in the world, but as God's ruling authority manifested 
through human beings. So Psalm 2 very much has an echo of that creation dynamic. It also harkens back to Israel's own calling, Israel's own election as son of God. Israel was, in a sense, constituted by God, chosen in Abraham to be a royal nation. Abraham himself was manifested aspects of kingship or dominion, and we see that he was promised a kingdom. And that dynamic of kingship and kingdom were at the very center of Israel's life and experience. A royal nation, a people who manifested God's own kingship and were to uh, carry out God's kingship in the world. And reaching its high point then thirdly in David and the covenant with David. David is the epitomizing Israelite, the regal seed of God the descendant of Judah, to whom the scepter, God's scepter, was entrusted. And so Israel's regal identity, its regal vocation, reached its focal point in David himself, the one through whom and in whom God would carry out his own rule in Israel, but through Israel and the nations around them. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would rule or his Possession would extend from the river Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, to the river of Egypt, to the Nile. And David is the one in whom that domain, that dominion was established. The kingdom that Solomon ruled over was the kingdom that his father David established. And you see in 1 Kings 4 that that kingdom was from the river to the sea to the river of Egypt. And the sons of Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, Abrahamic language. David was the one in whom God fulfilled that promise to establish a kingdom. So you have those three echoes in Psalm 2. And really throughout the royal psalms uh, that we see within the Psalter. But if the psalms are songs of sonship, The epitome of sonship or the focal point of sonship is this idea of kingship or regal status or rule. So Psalm 2 is an appropriate sequel to Psalm 1 um, in in that broad sense, but even perhaps more narrowly, Psalm 1 opens up with the proclamation of blessedness that comes to those who make their perpetual ongoing delight, Yahweh and his Torah. Yahweh and his disclosed truth. That one is blessed. And in Psalm 2, we see blessedness being attached to fidelity to the Son. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the two psalms are connected in that, in that way. Other ways as well, but that's perhaps the most obvious way. 
Psalm 1 tells us that in this thing of human sonship, the one who is blessed is the one who delights in Yahweh and the truth as Yahweh has revealed it. Psalm 2 then shows that this truth of Yahweh is ultimately manifested in the Son King who rules in Yahweh's name and his power. And all who will take refuge in him find blessing, find blessedness. And that's why I wanted to connect them in that way. Well, as we did with Psalm 1, I want to give some general observations about the psalm. We'll read it, and then some general observations, and then kind of pick it apart more specifically in the details. Psalm 2 reads, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising an empty thing, a futile thing, a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Mashiach. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his own outrage and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a staff of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And again, constructed in, in, in poetic verse, Hebrew poetry, and that's important to even pulling out the meaning of it is the way particularly in which the parallel ideas are constructed together. But another thing that is a part of the structure of Psalm 2, which to me is very um, intriguing and also very amazing, is that it's constructed almost like a stage scene. Almost like you were sitting in an audience looking at a stage and various actors are coming on stage and speaking, doing their thing. And, then, and, and so they're interacting with one another and interacting with the audience. You have different actors playing a role within this psalm. You have the narrator who is the psalmist himself. You have these rebels or these ones who seek to rise up against Yahweh. You have Yahweh. You have the Son King. The narrator opens the scene and the narrator closes the scene. But each of these players takes his part, one after the other. So the narrator opens the psalm with this kind of incredulous observation. Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? It's not so much saying, how could they do this? What could be in their hearts to make them do this? The idea is, why would they think this would prevail? Why would they have any thought that they could actually succeed in this effort? 
He's expressing, he's in a sense saying, really, really? He's expressing the absurdity of human beings seeking to liberate themselves from God's lordship. So in a sense, he's introducing this scene and saying, here's what these are doing. Here's the absurdity of this. And then the rebels themselves speak and they say, here's our aim. Here's our aim in this. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. Then after they speak, you have now Yahweh speaking. And he responds to this insurrection or to this attempt to liberate themselves from his authority. In that way, Yahweh affirms the writer's own incredulity. The narrator says, why would they do this? Why would they think this would prevail? And when we see Yahweh's response, he says, in effect, yes, that's true. Why would they rebel? This will not succeed. Humans can assert their autonomy, but God will be Lord over his creation. And he has demonstrated that by anointing and installing his chosen son, King. After that, then the king himself speaks. And he affirms, yes, it is true. Yahweh has anointed me. Yahweh has installed me as king according to his decree. Not merely to be a ruler over Israel, but ultimately to be a ruler over the world and to be ruler specifically as son, as son of God. And then lastly, the narrator closes out the scene by drawing out the implications of that installment. What this means for the people of the earth in view of God's decree and installment of his king. He's installed his son king over his kingdom and all are obliged to embrace and honor him. Again, an echo of Psalm 1, asserting that those who do will find blessing, while those who refuse will perish. So in terms of some of the particulars then, the narrator says, why would they do this? But he specifically does it through a double parallelism. He identifies these individuals as nations and peoples, as well as also kings and rulers. The nations are in an uproar. The peoples are devising a vain thing. They're imagining futile. They, they're, they're devising a futile agenda. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. A double parallelism. A double parallelism. And I think that it's intended to convey a kind of universality. There's not a direct mention of Israel in this. You have nations and peoples, kings and rulers. But certainly when you look at the way this was interpreted in the New Testament by the apostles or by the disciples gathered together, they saw this as a, universe, a universal attempt against God that includes the people of Israel and its rulers. 
When, when the disciples had been released, they went to their companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. This is Acts chapter 4, when they were arrested for preaching Christ and the resurrection. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David... There's the Davidic description. Your servant said, why do the Gentiles rage? And that is the idea of the term goyim, the, the Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're citing this psalm and they're interpreting this as being fulfilled in their days. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They saw in this double parallelism a kind of universality. This isn't a handful of people. This isn't some pagan nations. This is ultimately a kind of human disposition is the idea. And what binds them all together is this shared outrage and shared delusion. There's an outrage and a delusion that mark them. They have set themselves against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, his anointed. Mashiach means anointed. The word Messiah is our English version of Mashiach, but it doesn't mean Messiah in the way that we think of it in its first instance. It means anointed one. Mashiach refers to uh, an anointing of individuals for them as part of the preparation, a symbolic preparation, a setting apart of individuals for a divinely ordained vocation. Cyrus, the Persian king, was Yahweh's Mashiach. How can that be? Because he was raised up by God to send the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and ultimately to rebuild the city. You see this in Isaiah 44 and 45. Cyrus is my Mashiach. He's my anointed. I have set him apart and marked him out for this vocation, this task on behalf of my purposes. And that's the fundamental idea of, of Mashiach or an anointing. And ultimately it came to be a kind of title for Jesus himself, right? As the Mashiach, the one in whom this whole principle of anointing unto a specific vocation kind of became all concentrated. But this is, an, this is a kind of outrage and a delusion that are directed against God and against his anointed one. And then the writer has the, he, he states that, and then the rebels themselves speak and they say what their goal is. Let us tear their fetters apart. Who's there? Yahweh and his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords away from us. What is the idea? Fetters and cords, again, another parallelism, but they speak to this idea of that which binds or constrains. What their goal is, what their outrage is about, and what their deluded scheme or devising ultimately is about 
is that they will be able to liberate themselves from God's authority, from God's fetters, from God's cords. They will be able to rule themselves. They will be able to function independently. That parallelism together, this opening section, highlights that resistance to God's rule marks all people. What was Israel's rebellion about? Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Now Paul himself, at the tip of that spear, and other Israelites would not say we are rebelling against Yahweh. We are actually holding tightly to Yahweh by rejecting this imposter, this false Messiah. But the truth is they would have a Messiah according to their own notions, according to their own agenda, according to their own interests. They would not have the sort of king and kingdom that God intended. And so Paul himself came to recognize that even in his zeal for the God of Israel, he was a blasphemer and a grievous offender. So Israel, the covenant household, as much as the nations of the earth, Israel is just as guilty of this human hubris that they will have They will have a God on their own terms. They will have a ruler on their own terms. And certainly we live in a time where we've turned it into an art form to have our own truth, right? My God is, my God does. I believe this, I think that. Here's what I think is truth. Here's my truth. But it's a human circumstance. That's what's being gotten at here. It finds an obvious kind of, it's, it's easy to see that hubris in rulers and kings who say, we're in charge. This other God, this other king or whoever isn't in charge, we're in charge. But that desire for autonomy and self-rule is universal. So after these individuals then express their own delusional concept, their own delusional intent that they can free themselves from Yahweh's fetters, you have now Yahweh step up and address that. And the writer does what he did before, where he introduces something. He spoke to what the rebels were doing, then he let them speak for themselves. Here he speaks to what Yahweh is doing, and then he has Yahweh speak for himself. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. That's the narrator or the psalmist saying, here's God's response to this attempt. And then he has Yahweh himself speak. Yahweh laughs and scoffs and mocks at that sort of delusional hubris. It will not succeed. This uprising reflects the human insistence on autonomy. God responds to their outrage with his own outrage, saying this will not stand. This will not stand. I will remain Lord of the earth. I will remain Lord of the inhabitants of the earth. In the context of Israel's life, and certainly in the context of the Psalms, God reigned over the world from Mount Zion. 
He reigned over the world. He reigned over Israel, but the whole world from Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the center of the earth. It was the site of God's sanctuary. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. God reigned from Zion. So that's the idea of him installing his king on Zion. It's a symbolic idea. It's not about the actual geographical city of Jerusalem per se, as much as the idea of the place where God puts his name, the place where he encounters the world through his own place of habitation. He was not going to abdicate that throne to human challengers, and yet, and this becomes an important turning point, and yet... He was determined to have a man rule on his throne. He wasn't going to turn his throne over to human challengers, but he would have a man rule on his throne. Remember I said there's an echo of this all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and also an echo of it back to Israel as son of God, as regal son, regal nation, and David as well. So he will have a man on his throne, but a, cho- a chosen and anointed man, a man who, unlike every other human king, would faithfully administer his rule. Here's what God says when the psalmist says, God laughs, he speaks to them, he's, he's going to now express his own outrage towards them, and here's his outrage. As for me... I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's God's response. Here's what you intend. Here's what you think you can pull off. But the truth is I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. My king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, just as kind of an aside very quickly, if this is a psalm of David... If that's the timing, the the era in which this psalm was constructed, it had already long been established how God was going to carry out his theocratic rule over Israel and in the world. In other words, the Israelites singing this song would have had a sense in which God was going to have his king on the throne. And if David didn't yet know, know where it was going, he would soon understand he is, as a first level referent, the king that God has installed on Zion, my holy hill. If we knew the history, we would know that from the beginning, Saul could not hold the throne of Israel. He was of the wrong tribe, wasn't he? The scepter passed to Judah, Jacob's blessing on his sons. The scepter would remain with Judah till Shaloah comes, the one to whom it belongs. Saul was of the wrong tribe. David, the son of Judah, was the man after God's own heart. He was God's elect one, the chosen one to sit on the throne of Israel. So this psalm would have been understood in the first instance in terms of David. He was Yahweh's son, king, chosen to sit on the throne of Israel. And the Lord would subdue all Israel and the surrounding nations under David's rule. 
And one of the arguments that people often raise for the idea of a millennial kingdom is the fact that the bounds of Israel have never extended to the extent of the Abrahamic promise, but that's false. David secured all of those lands, but he did so as a composite kingdom, which is important to the typology, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But all of the nations brought their, those, those nations that were in that Abrahamic boundaries, they brought their tribute to David. He ruled over the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the great sea to the river of Egypt. Again, 1 Kings 4. David established the Abrahamic kingdom, the Abrahamic bounds, But at the same time, God made a covenant with David that made it very clear that David's own reign, David's own kingship, David's own status as son of God, David's own triumph, that that was just setting the stage for another to come from him. God was going to take a son of David. In fact, because of David's failure, the kingdom was going to go away, but God was going to reestablish that. Remember, the context of the Davidic covenant was David wanted to build a house for Yahweh in Jerusalem. He felt that that was the place where God wanted to have his name, the central sanctuary. And God said, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm not going to build you a building. I'm going to build you a regal house, a dynasty, a throne, and a kingdom that will endure forever in a son to come from you. So the psalmist's depiction of this unique anointed son king, although the first idea in people's heads would have been David, David is this Mashiach, this anointed one, it ultimately pointed beyond David to the individual promised in the Davidic covenant. David was the greatest and the most accomplished of Israel's kings. And you say, well, I think Solomon was the greatest. Well, Solomon simply administered the kingdom that David secured. Solomon was a man of peace. He didn't fight battles. He didn't enlarge the kingdom. David was the one who built the kingdom. David was the one who triumphed. He was the greatest, the most accomplished of Israel's kings. Kings, and yet the glory, the extent, the power of his rule never came close to what is promised here. So Yahweh says, here's my response to your hubris. I have installed my king on Zion. And he gave David great success, even as, again, that first level referent. But after God says, I've put my king on Zion, my holy hill, the king himself speaks. And he says, let me tell of Yahweh's decree. He has said, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them or rule them. The idea is shepherd them with a staff of iron. In other words, in a way that is absolute, successful, triumphal, can't be broken or overcome. Shatter it as if shattering them like earthenware. So this is the king's own statement regarding his installation. He says that this installation has come by divine decree. 
not just to make me king over Israel, but all the world. The earth and all of its inhabitants were to be his possession. Not by military conquest, as was the case with David, or by some sort of coup, as happened with the kings of Judah and Israel, you know, through the, and is, is the history of the world, right? Coups by which kingdoms that exist are, are usurped or taken over. But rather, he would gain the possession of all nations and the ends of the earth by inheritance. By inheritance. And inheritance points us to the idea of what? Sonship. Sons are heirs. This comes by inheritance. Sonship. The basis of the inheritance is the king's sonship. But sonship deriving not from genealogical descent, but divine decree. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit when we get to the end today. You are my son, this day I've begotten you. You are my son, this day I've begotten you. This is a sonship, not being born out of another person. This isn't an issue dealing with the eternal sonship question. Now, one of the things that, that we theologians tend to be preoccupied with is was, you know, the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity. This isn't that. This isn't that. Whatever we may think about or however we may deal with that issue, this is sonship by decree. It really is refocusing the idea of messianic sonship in a very important way. It's associated with the idea of Yahweh's decreed vocation to be king. Son, king, son, king. I have installed my king upon Zion this day. I've begotten you. So the issue is sonship as reflecting God's design to exercise his own lordship through his human image bearer created to be image son. This is echoes of all of the salvation history. This is in a decreed vocation of kingship. That's what the sonship is all about. Man has created for that role the royal nation of Israel with its kingship and king at the center. Ultimately, then, the singular individual son of Adam, Abraham, and David. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, it's very much at the center of it. Son of Adam, son of God. Son of Abraham, son of David. So the begottenness, this day I've begotten you, is not a question about the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity. It's not about when did the son become the son? Was, you know, what is this eternal procession of the son from the father, whatever? It's not that question. That's not what's at hand here. It's sonship, again, or begottenness as a matter of ordination and installation. Very much at the center of, again, God's relationship with Israel in the Davidic covenant. God said to David, I will set a son of yours on the throne. He will be my son. 
If, if your son is unfaithful, who is my son, I will chasten him with the, the rod of men, but I will not take my loving kindness from him. And when David then hands this over to Solomon and he says, this is what the Lord was talking about, even in the commissioning of Solomon to build the house, he's the promised son who's to sit on David's throne and build Yahweh's house. He says, God promised me sons, regal sons. If my sons, of whom you, Solomon, are the first, will obey the Lord and be faithful to him, then he will establish their throne and their kingdom forever. And ultimately, in Jeremiah 33, God promises out of his faithfulness, if the sun and the moon and the seasons can fail, then also my faithfulness to David and Levi will also fail. That I will not have a multitude of priests to minister to me, and David will not have a multitude of regal sons to rule on my behalf. Very much ideas that come to pass in connection with, or, or as revealed in, in the New Testament in relation to Jesus. The promise in Jeremiah is of this branch who will come and restore. And out of that will come a multitude of priests and a multitude of regal sons for David. And what does Peter say? Kings and priests to our God, right? Having come to Christ the living stone, you too have become living stones to be a royal priesthood. God's promise of a multitude of priests, a multitude of regal sons. That's the idea behind this begottenness. That's the idea behind this kingship. And that kingship here, the king says, is to be ultimate, absolute. Shepherding with an iron staff. David was a very successful king, but his kingdom was fragile and it was marred and it failed. Solomon reigned at the pinnacle of Yahweh's Israelite kingdom as the first referent of that Davidic covenant and the promise of a son of David. He ruled in a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity, power in Israel. And yet that also fell short. He never obtained the nations as his inheritance. He never obtained the ends of the earth as his regal possession. So after the king speaks, after Yahweh speaks, the narrator then comes back on and just like a bookend closes out this scene that is unfolding through the psalm. He began the psalm by decrying the folly of opposing Yahweh and his anointed, and he closes by calling for submission and devotion to them. Your hubris is delusional. Your quest for independence will not succeed. God will have his rule over the world through a king that he establishes, and therefore your rightful response is to Worship Yahweh by kissing the sun. And specifically here, he addresses kings and judges. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Is it just about kings and judges? No, I think kings and judges represent human authority. And they epitomize what we would call human hubris. 
rulers and judges set themselves above other people. They exercise authority. They manifest power over other men. And so they kind of epitomize this idea of human hubris raised up against God. But it is true of all people. Also, by mentioning kings and judges, it's expected, though very rarely the case, that those who hold positions of authority, those who are judges, those who are kings, will actually manifest, just as they, in a sense, rule over other men, they will manifest a superior discernment, wisdom, and judgment. Now, unfortunately, that's rarely the case. The higher people rise, usually the more clueless they are, right? I mean, it tends to be that way often. But the idea is is that judges will be more discerning than the average man. Kings will be more wise. They will be more understanding than the average man. So rulers and judges who instinctively ascribe to themselves superior understanding and wisdom, the psalmist is saying, you ought to demonstrate that by rejoicing in Yahweh's triumphal installation of his anointed one, and by worshiping him with all reverence and all devotion. And worshiping Yahweh in this way, in truth, with wisdom, with discernment, with insight, with understanding, entails kissing the sun. The idea of kissing the sun is paying homage, like a kissing of the ring or whatever. That's the idea. But it is kiss the sun. It's not affection per se. It's the idea of a rightful kind of submission. A devotion, a deference. He is the king above all kings. His authority, his kingdom know no bounds. They're not subject to time. They're not subject to circumstance. They're not subject to human designs. Rulers and authorities come and go, their power comes and it goes, it rises and it falls, but Yahweh's anointed will reign over all to all eternity. That's what the psalmist is saying. So it's futile to oppose that authority, Yahweh's authority in his human king. God has put everything in subjection to him with the ultimate goal of summing up everything in him. And that's the reason that all opposition and contradiction will be eradicated. Everything is to be gathered up in the sun. Therefore, everything that opposes that reality will be eradicated. But God's intent in the end is not destruction, but blessing. So the psalmist ends on that exclamation. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Understand what Yahweh has done. Rejoice in it. Worship him according to the truth of his triumph, of of his glory. Kiss the son. Find blessing in him. So this psalm answers the question or the issue raised in the first psalm, which is, in what sense, how is it that by meditating or being devoted to Yahweh and his Torah, how does that bring blessing? Well, it's because ultimately that embrace of Yahweh and his Torah is embracing and being transformed by the word made flesh. Torah embodied in the Messiah himself. So I just want to end, as I said earlier, with just kind of 
pulling in a little bit more this idea of begottenness. And this day I've begotten you. You are my son. How to understand this issue of sonship. Well, if our obligation is to kiss the son, in what sense? How do we understand this son? Where does the blessedness associated with that son and fidelity to him? And again, this is a general statement. It's not true across the board. But certainly in the modern era, we tend to have a preoccupation with establishing and insisting on the deity of Christ. And I'm not saying that that's unfounded or irrelevant or whatever. But there's a tendency to minimize the full humanness of the Son. You know, you hear people even talk about you know, in a sense, Jesus walking on the earth as a different sort of man floating above the fray. You know, he, he didn't endure all the things that we endure. People even say the reason that his blood is atoning is because it's divine blood. It's because his blood was unique. It's divine blood. And that's why it makes satisfaction. But the emphasis is on upholding the deity, the deity, the deity of Jesus. And where we think about his humanness or his humanity, often it tends to be with regard to the idea of him being a suitable substitute. He has to be a perfect man in order to make satisfaction for human beings. But the New Testament has a different sort of orientation on that. It emphasizes that he is son of God as son of man. When Jesus stands before Caiaphas at his tribunal, they, they, they get frustrated with him. They're asking him about the temple and, and tearing down the temple and rebuilding it after three days. And the, the high priest finally says, are you the Christ, the son of God? He's not asking, are you the second person of the Trinity? The Jews didn't think in terms of a Trinitarian theology. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? It's Allah Psalm 2. Messiah is Son of God in that he is anointed, ordained unto the vocation of regal sonship. And if you look, if you search on that expression, son of God, it's, it's always centered in this idea that Jesus as son of God is son of God because as son of man, as true man, he is son of God. Adam was son of God. Israel was son of God. And we saw through the book of Hebrews that this presentation of the glory and the exaltation of Jesus, the resurrection, his enthronement, is ultimately tied to the encouragement that that destiny is our destiny. He's enthroned as the glorified man. God has realized in him the truth of his intent for the human creature. And I'm not denying the deity of Jesus, but I think even that has to be rethought often in more biblical terms. But son of God does not mean deity in the biblical vernacular. It does not mean deity. That's not what that phrase is expressing. 
So his humanity points beyond substitution. It's front and center. It's front and center in this psalm. But the issue isn't just that he's a fit substitute because he's a human being. It really is more about substance than substitution. You are my son, this day I've begotten you. The decree of God concerning man, that man will be the one through whom God carries out his rule, manifests his presence in his creation. Son of God, decree of that has to do with him being, again, the messianic deliverer and king, ultimately the last Adam. So you see the father's declaration of Jesus' sonship at his baptism. The spirit descends on him and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, what's the issue there? God's declaration of his sonship is in the fact that he is shown to be man of the spirit. That's Isianic language. The Messiah will be preeminently man of the spirit. And this is very much at the heart of what John or what Luke is getting at as he builds his, his um, gospel account. He says, it came about when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Luke immediately gives his genealogy all the way back to Adam, who is son of God. And then immediately the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to carry out in himself Israel's own vocation as son of God. The wilderness temptation is a recapitulation or a carrying out a second time of Israel's own wilderness experience in which it failed as son of God. This isn't a deity issue. Israel was son of God, chosen of God on behalf of the world, that Yahweh's purposes for the world would be realized. And Israel failed. So the satanic deception in the wilderness is challenging Jesus at the point of Israel's own temptation in the wilderness. And each of Jesus' answers is drawn from Deuteronomy, which has to do with, again, what would have been Israel's right response to its wilderness temptation. The satanic adversary even draws from Psalm 91, which is a, we'll get to it eventually, but it's a celebration of what a true son looks like, what a faithful man looks like, what it looks like when a human being is truly faithful as a son of God. That's what Psalm 91 is all about. And Satan uses that against Jesus. You're the son of God. You're this kind of man. Here it says, you know, throw yourself off the temple because he said he'll give his angels charge concerning you to bear you up in their hands like, uh, you know, his angels will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against a stone. Luke understands that. He has Jesus coming out of the wilderness and going into the synagogue at Nazareth, taking the scroll of Isaiah and reading from it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The messianic credential. Messiah is not a deity category. It's true son category. Son, king. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. 
So what does this mean to us? Well, I think among other things, and here's where I want to leave it today, it tells us that the true blessedness that comes to faithful people, the true blessedness that the psalmists are celebrating and and are putting forth as hope and confidence for human beings, that true blessedness doesn't consist in natural gifts and endowments, although God does do those things. He gives us food and shelter, and he he gives us every good thing to enjoy. But true blessedness does not consist in those things, per se. Nor does it really consist just in forgiveness, cleansing, removal of guilt from sin. Blessedness consists in, he treats this as ingesting and chewing on Yahweh and his Torah, in Psalm 1. Well, what does that look like? It consists in becoming sons in the Son, taking refuge in Him. Again, in the language of kingship, a king, uh, you know, if you look in the feudal period, in the medieval period, you had lords who had castles and lands, and the serfs had nothing. Their well-being, their security, their safety, their provision came from coming under the care, the protection, the provision of the feudal lord. It's that kind of imagery, taking refuge in Yahweh and his king. And taking refuge in that son, king, is to find in ourselves that ultimate end that God intends for us. We find in him all that we are, all that we need, all that we're destined to be. That's what Hebrews is all about. Be faithful, be steadfast, be sure. You are heirs of all that Jesus has inherited. It's not just that you're forgiven It's not just that you're cleansed. It's not that you're going to heaven when you die. That's not the the big story. It's that the one who loses his life finds his life in me. It's that all that Jesus is as the glorified man is all that we are appointed to be. That's our destiny. That's what it is to take refuge in the Son. That's what it is to find blessedness in Him. He is the truth of us. He is our destiny. I say it all the time, but it's important for us to keep it in mind. God's not just wanting to clean us up and polish us up and you know, get rid of our guilt and have us get on with our lives. He would have us to be image sons as Jesus is image son. And we become that in him. This isn't an imputed righteousness in that sense. It's an incorporated righteousness. Embodying in ourselves the very righteousness of God's purpose for the world and for human beings. And I think that's important in why the Psalms start where they do. If the Psalter is songs of sonship, these are the foundational issues of sonship. These are the foundational issues that people are to understand. And again, I'm not trying to depreciate the deity of Jesus in any way. I think we often need to rethink that somewhat. But the issue is to ultimately recognize Think about this idea of sonship in a different way, as it even affects us. 
as it affects our self-understanding, the lives that we live, the way we worship. Well, things to think about, things to think about, but uh, in many ways, you know, tragically in our day and age, it's, it's hard for us to understand or want to acknowledge that these things were Christianity 101. They become so foreign to our thinking in so many ways, but these are the very rudiments of the significance of the gospel and what it means to be found in Christ. And I hope that we will be those who chew on it and meditate and find ourselves being transformed as well. Father, I I pray for each one here. I, I know there are all different levels of understanding. There are all different backgrounds. People have greater or lesser familiarity with some of these ideas. And perhaps some of what I said seems startling. Perhaps it seems very foreign. But I pray that you would not let any of us just walk away and and set these things aside. But I pray that we would be those who meditate day and night so as to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that we would flourish and that we would bear our fruit in season according to your ordination. There is no more foundational and critical dimension of this thing that we call the Christian life than this idea of sonship. And Father, it's something that we need to get right. It's something that we need to understand. It will give stability to our lives. It will give joy to our lives. It will give peace to our lives. It will inform us with the mind of Christ. To rethink about our Savior, to to rethink him in these ways and to recognize the truth of our actual relationship with him, and therefore with you in the Spirit. Father, we don't just want to be forgiven, to get on with our lives free of guilt. We want to see our own human existence attain the destiny for which you created us. That as your intent is to sum up everything in the creation in the Messiah, so your intent is that we would be summed up in him. That means that we would be fully conformed to him, transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory, to become sons and heirs as he is son and heir, fully, thoroughly, What greater gift could there be? What greater blessing? What greater bestowal? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's never even entered into the hearts of human beings truly what it is that you've prepared for your people. May we be those who seek to know it, to embrace it, to be changed by it. Father, may Christ be exalted in his church. May we be faithful testifiers to him, faithful stewards of this grace of life. Father, make us a gospel people. We ask in Jesus' name.